Good morning. Welcome again to Hiawatha. We're still glad you're here. Hasn't changed since the beginning of the service. And like Peter was saying, we are in Acts, and we're going to be in Acts for the rest of the calendar year. Assuming uh, the schedule is on schedule, we'll finish up right before Christmas. So we are in Acts 4 today, uh, 23 through 31. And I do not have my clicker up front, so... Uh, I'm Jesse. I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha. And for those of us who are not Chris and Spencer, who do most of the preaching, it's our privilege to get to preach once or twice a year, a couple times. And I love preaching, so I am always excited when I get to do this. Uh, some people... Ah, thank you. Some people find the thought of standing up here speaking a terrifying thought. For me, this is actually relaxing. Like, ah, this is great. I'm up here. I'm preaching. Because my thought is, even if I do horribly, it's God's word, so he'll still do something with it, which is great because it removes all that pressure from me. It's like, ah, it doesn't matter how I do in that sense. In other senses, it kind of does. But So, Acts 4. Today we're going to talk about God's plan and God's hand. The plan that he has and then his hand, meaning like his power, his ability to see that plan through to make it happen. So let's jump right in. Acts chapter 4. When they were released, they being Peter and John, who had been arrested for healing this guy and then taken before the Jewish religious leaders and then threatened and then let go because the guy they healed was standing there, and they're like, well, we can't really do anything to him. We can see the guy. They're not lying. So when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. All right, so if you've not been to Hiawatha before, this will be... A typical sermon, we usually just go through verse by verse, explain what's going on, and kind of walk through the passage and have some preaching moments throughout, and that'll be the case today. So, we'll start with verse 23, and a little bit of review, so a little bit of summary of all of Acts 3 and Acts 4, 1 through 22. So, when they were released, they being Peter and John. So, the beginning of Acts 3, Peter and John are on, they're in Jerusalem. They're on their way to the temple, which was the central location of worship in Jerusalem for Jews. And they were going up there at a certain time when people would go up to pray. And they were going up there to pray uh, to God and to Jesus. And they go up, and at that time, no social security, no things of that nature, no government assistance if you were injured. 
So there was a lame guy, a guy who couldn't move, couldn't work, couldn't make his own living. And so he was laying by one of the temple gates. It's a great place to lay. People are going up, they're going to worship God. And so it's a great place to ask for money because just the type of people that would be going and uh, kind of the mindset they would have, they might think, well, maybe God will favor me a little more if I slip him a few coins or something like that. So he's sitting by the gate begging, asking for money as people go in to pray and to do whatever else they have to do there. Peter and John walk by, and this guy's not really paying attention. It's the kind of thing where you kind of ask everyone for money and then someone who responds, then you actually focus in and give them attention. So he's just asking and asking, and Peter and John stop, and they say, hey, look at us. So he looks at him, he's like, ooh, I'm going to get some money, this is great. And then Peter opens his mouth and says, actually, I don't have any money, but I'll give you something else. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And instantly the guy's healed, and he goes into the temple with them, and he's walking and leaping and praising God and just uh, ecstatic and excited that his body's been healed. So this happens, and then people hear about it, because this was a guy who had been laying here doing this for years. And so people recognize him and they say, hey, wait a minute, he seems to be moving. He seems to be doing things he couldn't do for the last 40 years. What's going on here? So people gather around and Peter and John then preach a little sermon. And they say, hey, we didn't do this on our own power. This is all Jesus Christ. And they go through and explain parts of the gospel. The religious rulers get wind. Hey, there are these two guys in the temple and they just healed a guy. And now they're talking about Jesus, who I thought was that guy we just killed a few weeks ago. What's going on? So then Peter and John get arrested and get brought before this council and questioned and kind of like this legal trial type of process to find out what's going on. But the guy's standing right there that was healed. So the religious leaders can't just say, well, you're lying or something like that because the guy's there and everyone saw it happen. So they say, well, all right, you healed him. That's great, I suppose. But this Jesus guy, you can't keep talking about him. You can't keep preaching in his name. And then it says in the passage earlier in Acts 4 that they tell them don't do this anymore, and then they threaten them. And then they let him go. So that's where they're at. When they were released, so all that has happened, the religious leaders have let him go because they don't really have anything to hold him on. And then Peter and John go back to their friends and report everything that was said everything that happened. And you see there uh, on the bottom of the screen, Acts 4 earlier in the passage, verses 18 and 21. So they, the religious leaders, called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go. So all that happens, Peter and John report everything that was said. And then verse 24, when they heard it, the Peter and John and the people they reported to, they lifted their voices together to God and said something. Now, of course, I already read the passage, so you know what they said. But remember Acts 4.21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go. And this isn't just a threat, like, well, you know, we're religious leaders and what you're saying here isn't quite theologically accurate, so just don't do that anymore because it's bad and God doesn't like it. Or even the threat, if you keep doing this, we're going to excommunicate you. You won't be able to come to the temple. You won't be able to receive the blessings of God. No, this is the kind of threat. Do you remember that guy Jesus you're talking about? And how we killed him a few weeks ago? And how we stirred up Rome? And how we didn't really have anything on him that we could kill him for, but we got Rome to do it? We're not saying, but we're just saying, you better not keep talking like this. Or the same thing might happen to you. You might end up swimming in the Jordan with the fishes. So they threatened them. For those of you 
who are parents. Now they're lifting their voices together to God. Now these are God's children. So think about someone coming up to one of your children and saying, you know, that thing you were doing, you better not do that anymore or I'm going to kill you. And think as a parent, what would be your response to that? Probably not something very friendly. Your response might be something like, well, you better not ever say that to my child again, or you're going to be the one swimming in the Jordan. Or, you know, as these people, they did kill Jesus. He rose from the dead, but they do have a lot of power. Maybe we shouldn't stop talking, but maybe we should back off a little bit. Maybe not in the temple or in public. Maybe just go house to house, something like that. But no, that's not what they say. Look at what they start off with. Sovereign Lord. So before they ask for anything, before they even get into what has happened, they acknowledge that God is sovereign. That he's the one who's in control. That he's a ruler. That he's a king. That he's the one who ultimately has authority here. Ultimately, it's not the religious rulers. Ultimately, it's not Pontius Pilate or the emperor of Rome. Ultimately, God is the one who has authority. He's the one who's sovereign. And what is he sovereign over? Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So Peter and John have healed this guy by God's power through the name of Jesus. They're arrested, they're threatened, they're let go. They go back to these people. And now, the first thing they do is remind themselves, we don't have to be afraid because God's the one who's in control. He's sovereign. And not just sovereign here in the situation, he's sovereign over everything. He's the one who made everything. He made all the earth, he made all the heavens. Everything we can stand here and see, he made. And he made everything in it, every animal, every person. He is the one who's in control. His realm of sovereignty is so much greater than Rome's. So much greater than the religious ruler's. His realm of sovereignty is everything you see and everything you don't see. That's his realm. Then they're going to remind themselves of some things God has said before through David, a uh, king and author in the Old Testament, that shows that God knew this was going to happen. So who through the mouth, so sovereign Lord, you're sovereign over everything. And through the mouth of our father David, your servant, you said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? So in the Gospels, you see this raging and this plotting happen. In Matthew 26, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So this is before Jesus is killed, obviously. And all these religious leaders get together in secret, and they're plotting to kill Jesus, to arrest him and kill him. But they have to do it stealthily because the people like Jesus. So they have to figure out, we need to get rid of this guy, but how do we do it? Because everyone loves him except us. How can we do it? But they're plotting to kill him. And then eventually they kind of figure something out. Jesus gets arrested, he gets put on trial, and kind of goes back and forth between being on trial before the Jews and on trial before Rome. And when he's standing before Pilate, Pilate questions, questions Jesus and he's like, this is silly, they don't have anything on you. And so he announces to the crowd, okay, like, I'm going to whip him just to satisfy you guys, but then I'm going to let him go. Like He hasn't really done anything, he certainly doesn't deserve death. 
And the crowd starts rioting, and they're like, no, you have to crucify this guy. And Pilate's like, why? What did he do? And they don't answer. They just keep shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And the chief priests and elders are stirring people up. And that's Matthew 27. So when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. So it gets to the point where the people are about to riot. And as governor under Rome, in some small town, uh, relative to some other parts of the empire of Rome, you really don't want riots happening in your jurisdiction. That doesn't reflect well on your annual review. So you see here this plotting, that there's plotting going on by the religious rulers, and that there's this raging, this anger leading to out-of-control action. A riot's about to start. These people are raging. And what does God say through David in Psalm 2? Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? So this happens, this plotting, this raging, but we're going to see in a minute, it was all in vain. Verse 26, the king, and verse 26 is still quoting Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So you've got these two camps. You've got the earthly kings, the Jewish rulers, uh, the king, emperor of Rome, Pontius Pilate, who's under that emperor. So you've got the kings of the earth setting themselves against God the king, who, remember, has sovereignty over all realms. So you've got this tension of, all right, you've got all these earthly kings, and they're setting themselves. They've got this plot. They're going to try and kill Jesus. But they're going against the Lord and against his anointed, who is Jesus Christ. Um, Psalm 2, you may not know, is a coronation psalm. So it was read at the coronation of different kings of Israel. The king would be anointed. There'd be a ceremony. Part of that ceremony was reading this psalm. So in quoting this psalm, they're saying, Jesus, we acknowledge that you are king. You're not just Lord, you're not just master, you're actually a king over the kings of Rome, over the religious leaders. So you've got the kings of the earth setting themselves against God the king. And it's in vain. It's going to be in vain. You can set yourself against God. People do it all the time. We do it ourselves. You see it happen throughout scripture. But it's in vain. You can't win because he's God. His sovereignty is so much greater. His power is so much greater. Fortunately, we'll see also later in the passage that his love and his mercy are also so much greater. But that's where we're at. So you've got this tension going on. They're acknowledging this in their prayer. And then 27, continuing to explain this. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and people of Israel. So all these people, they made their plans in secret, they got this plot in motion, they stirred up the crowd, they caused this near riot, they kind of pressured Pilate into doing something that he knew he really shouldn't do, that there was really no basis or grounding for it. And they had Jesus executed, he was crucified. But look at verse 28. What do they say here about all that? All of that was just them doing whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. They thought they were so clever with all their plotting, with getting things stirred up. They were so proud of themselves once it worked. They got it. They crucified Jesus. But in the end, all they were doing was everything God had decided ahead of time would happen anyway. All the time they thought they were setting themselves against God, which they were, they were actually helping to fulfill the plan that he had. 
God still has a plan. It's the same plan. The plan is Jesus. The plan is healing and salvation from sin, from the evil we do against God and against other people. And there are times where we set ourselves against God. But in that, all we're doing in the end is carrying out the plan that God had. If you're in this room today, part of God's plan was that you would be here and be reminded of of this. Or hear it for the first time if you haven't heard it before. You're here today because God planned for you to be here. God has a plan. And notice God's plan here involved Jesus' death and resurrection. And this was a horrible death. It wasn't just like they lined up a firing squad and shot him or hung him. It was much worse than that. God's plan is not always pleasant for us. God's plan can involve a lot of pain and a lot of suffering in very serious and very deep ways. But that doesn't mean that God's not present. From the human perspective, the apostles, when they saw this stuff happening to Jesus, they ran away. Because their thinking was, it's failed. Jesus failed. We saw him do all these miracles, but now they got him, and he can't get out of it. God failed him. It says in the Gospel of John, there were some of the apostles who saw Jesus being crucified. They were standing at a distance because they were afraid if they got caught, they'd be hung up on crosses too. But they're standing there and they're seeing all their hopes and all their dreams for the future. Hopes and dreams that cause them to leave their families, leave their vocations. Like they have nothing left. And they see all of that bleeding to death and suffocating to death. And they're thinking to themselves, we've made some poor life choices recently. It looked like The plan failed, but it didn't. All of that was part of God's plan. God has a plan for each of you, for each of you, for each of us, for me. Primarily, his plan is that we would know Jesus Christ, that we would be saved from sin, that we would experience all the benefits there are in knowing God, in knowing Christ, in going from God's enemy to God's friend. But that's not always a process that involves only pleasantries and only ease. It can be very painful. It can be very difficult. But God has a plan for each of you. So they acknowledge all that. They say, okay, God, this is what happened, but this is who you are. You're still in control. Everything that happened that seemed like it was messing up what you were doing, that was all part of your plan. You had determined ahead of time this is what would happen. So that's the plan. Now God's hand. What are they going to ask for? Knowing who God is, knowing his sovereignty and his power, what are they going to ask to happen next? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants something. Again, what do you think they might ask for here? Grant to your servants that you just destroy those religious leaders. Just call down fire and kill them all. They're just in the way. They're messing with your plan. Just get rid of them so we can preach more freely so there's less fear. Or, God, did you hear what they said? To your children. They threatened to kill your children. What are you going to do about that? You're not going to let that stand, are you? If someone threatened to kill my child, I wouldn't just be like, ah, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. I'll just move on. No. God, what are you going to do? But those aren't the things that they ask for. The first thing they ask that they'd be able to continue to preach, to continue to speak the word with boldness. Not with safety, not with protection, but with boldness. 
Now, it's certainly not wrong in prayer to ask for things like comfort or safety or provision. Those are things that are prayed for throughout the New Testament, for physical healings, for all these things. In one of uh, Paul's letters, he says, hey, pray for what's going on in your country. Pray for what's going on in your city, because if those things are at peace, you'll be at peace. You'll be able, physically, in terms of your life, you'll be able to live just a quiet, kind of peaceful life, enjoy, you know, going to your work every day, having some time off on the weekend, eating good food. Those are good things. But those are not the primary prayers that are prayed in the New Testament. Primarily is the preaching of the word. That nothing would hinder it. That there would be boldness. That it wouldn't be stopped. For those of us who are believers, as we pray, are our prayers like this? Certainly praying for other things in our lives that are going on that God cares about and that we see examples of those types of prayers in Scripture. But with that, are we praying that God gives us opportunity and gives us boldness to proclaim the truth. And that doesn't mean necessarily to stand up like this and preach a sermon for half an hour. It can be a 30-second conversation with a coworker. It can be a minute-and-a-half conversation with the person at the checkout lane when you're buying your groceries. It can be an hour-long conversation with a friend while you're playing a board game or a video game. It doesn't have to be a formal setting like this. But do you have prayers that revolve around the spreading of God's word and that reflect back to Christ. That ultimately the end of that prayer would be that Christ is made more famous. That he's more known. That people who don't know him know him. That people who don't currently experience the benefit of a relationship with him experience that. Is that part of how you pray? If not, I'd encourage you to look through the New Testament. Not just this passage. But throughout the New Testament, to see when the apostles pray, when other believers pray, this is all over the prayers of the New Testament. By far, the main thing that's prayed. Not in these words always, but this idea. The idea, let nothing hinder the proclaiming, the auditory proclaiming of the gospel. Whether boldness is what they pray for, or lack of opposition so that it can go forth in places where it's difficult. But that's not all they pray. They pray that the word would go forth. That's the primary thing they pray. But with that, while you stretch out your hand to heal, this phrase at this time in history is a shocking phrase to pray of God. While you stretch out your hand to heal. The reason being, if you look through the Old Testament, God often stretches out his hand. But it's very rarely to heal. It's often to destroy or to punish. And so to see that shift from not praying, which to some degree, you would think they would be justified in praying that. They've just been threatened. And not just something that's secondary, even something primary that's not primarily God-focused, like their life or losing their house. But they've been threatened not to do the primary thing God said, this is what you're going to spend the rest of your life doing. And so to pray, God, I pray you'd stretch out your hand and curse those religious leaders. Looking through the Old Testament, you might think, yeah, that's a valid prayer to pray. Like that type of thing happened. God destroyed enemies. He cursed people that came against his people. But they pray while you stretch out your hand to heal. Let's look at a few Old Testament examples and then a New Testament example. So a few selected verses from the book of Exodus. God speaking here. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders I will do in it. The Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So, 
here stretching out his hand against God's enemies. But it's not just his enemies, he also stretched out his hand against his own people in the Old Testament when they were sinning and rejecting him. From Isaiah 5, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. But now contrast those with the Gospel of Luke. So here, this is during Jesus' earthly ministry before he died and rose from the dead. And he basically just wander, went around different cities teaching and healing people. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. So you see that shift from God stretching out his hand to punish and destroy here in the gospel. And you see this in Acts. This is what they pray for. And then throughout the New Testament, there are many other examples of this. Now, God's stretching out his hand to heal. No longer to curse, no longer to destroy, now to heal. And look at what accompanies that. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So remember, the primary prayer, enable us to preach with boldness, to continue to speak with boldness. Let the word go forth. But accompany that with these healings, with these signs, with these wonders, so that people can see physical representations of the power that's present in your word. The power that's there, but you don't always see it fully right away when you believe it. But a physical thing, you've got someone with a shriveled hand, you've got someone whose legs don't work, who lays next to the temple begging, and they're healed instantly, you see that. You see the power of God. You see the sovereignty God has over the realm of disease. And look at the end there. It's through the name of the Holy Servant Jesus. So it's not in the name of Peter or John or the other people doing it. It's in Jesus' name. Those things point back to Jesus. They enhance and undergird the preaching, which is the main thing. In Romans, another book in the New Testament, it says, people believe by hearing. That's where belief comes. Not by seeing, by hearing. Hearing the word. But these other things that accompany it, these miracles, these signs, which we'll see throughout Acts, are something God does to say, okay, you've heard the word, but you're a people that doubts. People doubt. They disbelieve. So let me show you some things to kind of remind you and give you some encouragement of, no, I am God. I am powerful. And if I can heal someone's withered hand, if I can heal someone's eyes, if I can bring sight to someone who's blind, if I can raise the dead, I can heal the spiritual sickness you have. I can heal the sin that's infected not just your body, but your heart. I've healed the external things to show you I have the power to heal the internal thing, which is harder by far and much more beneficial by far to be healed of. That is what God is doing now. If you're here, God is stretching out his hand to you to heal. I don't know anyone's background or very few people's backgrounds here. You may have had very bad experiences with the church. Your idea of God, maybe that God, idea of God that he's just waiting to stretch out his hand and zap you with a lightning bolt. Just waiting for you to step out of line, waiting to call down fire on you. That's not who he is. Well, that is a piece of who he is. And that's still a piece of who he is. But what he's primarily doing now 
Peter, one of the guys put on trial here, speaks later in a different book that he wrote. He says, God is patient. And right now, he's exercising patience because he wants all to be saved. And so he's being patient with us when we sin, when we slap him in the face, when we turn away from him, when we plot, when we gather against him. He's showing us patience so that we turn to him. He's got his hand stretched out to heal. The greatest example of that, Jesus died on the cross with arms outstretched, nailed to that cross. And in that stretching out to heal, he healed not just one leper, or not just a town of lame people, or not just one blind guy in the temple, or not just one guy's dead daughter. He heals everyone who believes. His death and resurrection is the ultimate stretching out to heal. And anyone who believes is healed. No exceptions, no qualifications, no prerequisites. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they pray, God, let us continue to speak with boldness and continue to perform these physical, supernatural manifestations that will remind people or encourage people in the fact that your word is powerful, that your word heals, that your word is greater and its benefits far more long-lasting than any physical healing. You know, because Peter and John, they heal this guy and he gets up and he dances and that's great and he praises God, but eventually he died again. Or Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and that's great, but he died again. And ultimately, all the other things that can be done, if you can't overcome death, they're ultimately failures to some degree or unfulfilling to some degree. Because it's like, great, I'm really sick, I have cancer and God heals me, but someday I'm going to die of something else, some other disease or old age or some accident or whatever it is. If you can't fully overcome death, then no matter what else happens and is overcome, there's always that shadow that hangs over everything. And Jesus' death and resurrection is the thing that brings light and scatters that shadow. So they pray. And the place they were gathered together was shaken. So even for them, believing that this is going to happen, having seen this happen, God gives them that physical representation. He's like, okay, I'm going to shake your building a little bit. Just to remind you, yes, I'm powerful. This is going to happen. I'll give you this physical thing to show you that I'm going to answer. And look at the last thing said here. What did they do? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered the prayer. He did it. He gave these scared men, these men who when Jesus was arrested fled, one of them actually stripping naked and running away because the guards grabbed his clothes. And so he fled naked rather than be captured. And he's like running through the city of Jerusalem with no clothes. Those guys, so terrified, who after Jesus died locked themselves in a room because they were afraid at any moment Rome was going to come for them and kill them, are now ones that after the religious leaders say, if you keep talking about this guy, we're going to kill you. And they're like, "Mm, we're going to keep talking about this guy. Because God gives us boldness. And he's sovereign. And he's in control. And we don't have to worry about what you're going to do to us. But with that, we're going to take just a minute and talk about this idea of filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've been here for Acts so far, this might be a little bit of a head-scratcher because you know in Acts 2, they received the Holy Spirit. So it's like, okay, this is a little strange. They already have the Holy Spirit, 
So how can they have the Holy Spirit and now they're filled with the Holy Spirit? Did they like lose him when they got arrested or it drained out or what's going on here? So 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you're here and you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Period. To each believer, God gives the manifestation of the Spirit, commonly talked about as a spiritual gift, for the common good. Right now, I'm up here preaching. I'm exercising one of the spiritual gifts God has given me. But look at this verse. It says, my preaching is primarily for the common good. God didn't give me this gift primarily for my benefit. Now, certainly I benefit from it, both in the prep time I spend and just learning different things, God showing me things, and then the preaching itself I benefit. But God gives it to me primarily to benefit the body. Otherwise, I could just sit at home and like preach a sermon to myself in my bedroom or something. But then the body wouldn't benefit. Each of you in this room who is a Christian has been given the Spirit for the common good. If Hiawatha is your home, one, do you know what that manifestation is? Do you know what your spiritual gift is? If so, are you using it? If not, the body is suffering because of that. Just like if I cut off one of my fingers, my body still functions. I can still perform the necessary tasks I need to do, but it cripples me to some degree. And the more pieces that are cut off, the less well my body will function. If you're here just visiting and you're a believer, whatever your home church is, are you using your gift there? Are you benefiting the body? And if you're here and not a believer, you are still benefiting from the gifts. You're benefiting from my gift of preaching, not because I'm anything special or I'm so great at preaching, but because God's Spirit uses that to proclaim truth and to change people. People who have the gift of hospitality, who greeted you, who said hi to you, who talked to you, you're benefiting from that gift, from that conversation. So to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you're a believer, you have the Spirit. So then, what about this idea of being filled with the Spirit? Is that different? What does that mean? We'll go to Ephesians 5.18, where Paul, the author of Ephesians, writes, and he contrasts drunkenness with being filled with the Spirit. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So, being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk on wine, but spirit-focused, not wine-focused. So that gives us kind of a picture of what it means. If you're drunk on wine, you're controlled by it. You can drink wine and have wine in your system and have wine without being filled with wine. To be filled with it is to be controlled by it. To act in ways you would not normally act. So it is to be filled with the Spirit. If you're here and you're a believer, you have the Spirit, period. Scripture makes that clear. But are you being controlled by it? Are you letting the Spirit control you? Or is it like a glass of wine where you just take a few sips and it doesn't really change a lot of things? Like it's there and it's great. Maybe it makes you feel a little happier, a little more relaxed, but nothing else really changes. Are you letting the Spirit control you? Are you letting the Spirit show you, these are the ways I've gifted you. These are some of the ways you can use that. And if you don't know what your gifting is, Ask. It's for the common good, so ask other people what they think. In what ways have you seen me encourage the body? In what ways have you seen me serve the body? In what ways have you seen that be- the things that God has given me benefit the body? Are you filled with the Spirit? It's possible to have the Spirit 
and not let the Spirit control you, to still try and set yourself against it. But remember, that's in vain. Both because God is stronger and because his way is the way of reaching out to heal. If you're trying to resist what the Spirit's doing, if you're trying to resist what God's given you, you're harming yourself and you're harming the body. Be filled with the Spirit. So, conclusion and a little application. Remember that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. It doesn't always feel like it. You might be here today and you might feel like God is not sovereign in your life. You might feel like things in your life are falling apart. Or stuff's happening that you had no plan that it was going to happen and you're so confused or you're so angry at God or you're so hurt or you're so afraid. God is still sovereign. Remember the plan he had for Jesus, which involved Jesus' horribly painful and unjust death and the benefit that came from that. God is sovereign. Two, remember, to set yourself against the Lord and his anointed, against Jesus, is in vain. It's in vain. We all do it. Sin still exists. We all still sin. But remember that God has stretched out his hand to heal you, not to condemn you, not to curse you. If right now you're setting yourself against God, it's not going to work. He's stronger than you, but his love is greater than your hate or your indifference or whatever lie you're believing that tells you it's a good idea to set yourself against God. Believe that Christ's death and resurrection is the ultimate stretching out to heal you. Believe that whatever benefit you think you're gaining from setting yourself against God, it's ultimately not going to benefit you. It's going to lead to death. And the benefits of reaching out and taking that hand that God first reached out to you is going to be so much better. And then finally, especially those of you at Hiawatha, that this is your home church, that you're believers, if you're a Christian, you have been given the Holy Spirit for the common good. And filling with the Holy Spirit results in words and actions that point to Jesus' death for sins and his resurrection from the grave. Be filled with the Spirit. Use your gifting to benefit the body. To bring glory to God. To remind us, because we all need this reminder every day, that Jesus Christ died to accomplish what we couldn't accomplish for ourselves. To bring us back to God who were far away from him because it was a gap that we could never cross on our own. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead is proof that it's effective. Proof that God is sovereign, not just over the things he made, but even over death, even over time, even over those things we think it's impossible to be sovereign over. But God is. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are king that you have come and you have done what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you that all plotting against you is in vain. And I pray that knowing that I have plotted against you, and I thank you that it was in vain, that you did not curse me or strike me down, but that you healed us, that you reached out your hand to heal. I pray, God, for everyone in this room who doesn't know you, who's hearing this for the first time, that they would know that they have done horrible evil against you, which can never be made up or repaid can never be balanced on a scale of karma, but that you have stretched out your hand to heal them. May they believe that today. 
And for those of us who do believe, may we be reminded of it because we need that reminder every day. And may you show us how you have gifted us to benefit the body. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond with these songs. Mm -hmm.